Welcome to the HCC Podcast. Our mission is to nurture love for God, love for self, and love for others as the highest goal of humanity. May the following message nurture that love in your life. And remember, you're always welcome at HCC. It's a perfect church for less than perfect people. Peace. Holy Spirit, thank you for the opportunity to be able to bring this to you. Marriage, a covenantal bond in marriage, is two very different things uniting together as one. That is the gospel. A human and a divine. The divine of Jesus Christ and a human being, two very, very different things wed together in a marriage of the soul. And I pray that for every Christian marriage that's tuning in today, that you will speak to them, Holy Spirit. You will challenge them to rise up and recognize that their own happy marriage is not the end of what God intends for every Christian marriage. He intends for every Christian marriage to be a witness to the world of what it means when two become one. Two very different things become one, wed in spirit. So I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our marriages across this nation and help us to be a witness for you. And we will be grateful in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And amen. We're talking about Romans chapter 12. So if you've got your church app, I want to encourage you to open up your church app or go to your Bible app. Uh, I believe we've restored internet, maybe. Anybody got internet in this place? Yeah? Okay, some people got to have internet in this place. Likely you have internet at home because you're streaming this. So you can go on your church app, your Bible app, or get your paper Bible out and turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be walking through this little mini-series on Romans 12. It'll probably take us about three weeks. I want to chunk this out into sections because ultimately what the Lord is leading us to in this annual theme of We Greater Than Me, this annual emphasis on fellowship, we are using Romans 12 as a guide, not only Ephesians chapter 4, but also Romans 12 as a guide as to how we as the church, we as the people of God, live in community, not just with God, but with others as well. So Romans is a critical piece to all of this, and we need to start with verses 1 and 2. That's what we'll be living today, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not one of the original 12, but he came later uh, after Jesus had resurrected and ascended into heaven. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and had an incredible conversion experience. Went away, did all of his training, all of his uh, discipleship, met with the apostles and ultimately became the leading voice in the New Testament with regard to the advancement of the kingdom of God. It was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to the Christians of Rome. Now these were folks in Rome who were Jews and had accepted the Messiahship of Jesus. So he's writing to Christians. Usually letters that were written such as this were written to a particular church but he's writing to more of a region. He's writing to a city. There were likely dozens and dozens of churches in Rome that met in homes or met in little shops or places or uh, gathering spaces. He's writing to all of those Christians in Rome in order to characterize the entire gospel. The book of Romans is actually written in a letter form. Does anybody ever re remember writing a letter? Mike can't even remember writing a, a check. So, I mean, writing a letter is probably even more distant in his memory. You know, I mean, young people don't write letters. And we write, well, just like you would write an email now today or you would write a text today, Paul is actually writing a letter much like that. The ancient letters uh, were of a variety of uh, topics or content. In fact, the ancient letters could be as simple as, Dad, send money. Anybody ever gotten one of those? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get one the first of every month. I get one. A text, Dad, send money. Or 
It could be as elaborate as an incredible long presentation that is meant to be published and in fact turned into more like a book. That's the way the letters could run, from a simple text to a grand presentation of some complicated situation. Paul's letter to the Romans falls somewhere in between, but this letter is more public than private. It's not to a particular person or to a particular church, it's to this region he's writing. It doesn't seem to focus on any particular person or group, so he's getting at this general characterization. Paul's letter to the Roman Christians seems to be an essay dedicated to building an argument, if you will, for the sake of the gospel. Some Bible scholars actually believe that Paul used this letter to the Romans as a way of working out his own understanding with regard to the gospel. Do have any of you ever said, listen, I just need to talk this out? In order to understand it, I just need to talk it out. Sometimes when you're arguing, you're learning what you're arguing about as you're arguing. You don't even know the topic. You don't even know why you're frustrated. But as you talk about it, you're getting more and more clear as to why you're talking like you're talking or thinking like you're thinking. It seems like most many Bible scholars believe that he actually was attempting to do this, to work out his own thinking clearly. Indeed, the first 11 chapters, if you're reading through the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters is a mounting theological argument for the sake of the gospel. He is organizing the address of the gospel in an an argumentative way. He's building it like a lawyer would build a case. Brick upon brick, stone upon stone, point upon point, principle upon principle. It's a very linear progression of a theology of the gospel. And remember that Paul only had the Hebrew Bible to go on. So he only had the resource of the Hebrew Bible. What, what, what is the Hebrew Bible? It's the Old Testament. That's all he had. Paul didn't have the writings of Luke. He didn't have the book of Acts. He didn't have John's writings or Peter's writings. He just had the Old Testament. He had the Hebrew Bible. There was no New Testament. In fact, what we're reading today is actually the origination of the New Testament. Paul wasn't even aware that he was writing the New Testament. He didn't say, I'm gonna, I think I'll sit down and write Scripture today. I think I sit down and write parts of the Bible today. He was just writing a letter and working out his own theology, his own understanding, and hoping that it would bless some Christians in the city of Rome. So Paul is developing, actually, a new gospel theology. It wasn't like he picked up Billy Graham's book. He didn't reference Charles Stanley. He, he actually was working all of this out on his own for this new people group called the Christians. For Paul, until recently in his life, there were no such people as Christians. Nobody was calling anybody Christians at that time. Paul wasn't writing knowing that there were these Christians of another religion. These were simply Jewish people who had accepted the Messiahship of Jesus. In fact, it would be 50 years past Paul's death before anything like Christianity became an independent religion from Judaism. In fact, Christianity was a small part of Judaism at this time. So he was writing to these Jews in Rome that knew this Hebrew Bible, that knew this Old Testament but we're not quite clear about how this new Jesus, this new gospel, fits in to this Old Testament understanding. Therefore, Romans seems to be an attempt by Paul to reason out a theology of the gospel for himself and for the new kind of person that's being called eventually a Christian. Now, what is theology? Theology is some kind of term that lots of Christians avoid. In fact, I've had a number of people say to me, you know, Pastor Steve, I don't do theology. I just do the Word. Well, what do you believe about the Word? I believe this and that. That's theology. (laughs) So theology is not some distant, crazy kind of word. It's actually simply the study of God. That's all it really means. 
the study of God. And if you believe that God's word, the Bible, is part and parcel of God, then the study of God's word is really the study of God. So if you're going to study the Bible, you're doing theology like Paul was doing. And since the study of God begins with the Bible, let's do some really good study, some really good theology, and take a look at the Bible. Chapter 12 of Romans, let's start with verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God, hear that word, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Does anybody ever want to know God's will? Does anyone, would any of you like to know God's will? I imagine everybody in here will want to know God's will. You've prayed about God's will. The theme of Romans is simply a theology of the gospel and its natural outworking. And this Paul roots in this reality, this actually is the will of God. He's saying that this understanding of the gospel and the gospel working itself out in your life in very practical ways is in fact the very perfect, pleasing will of God. Paul was trying to build a clear, reasoned understanding of the gospel and chapters 1 through 11 do exactly that. But in Romans chapter 12, Paul turns to the practical application of all of that theology. The practical application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an explanation of God. You, living out the gospel, is an explanation of God to the rest of the world that doesn't know God. So to the Christian church, we are a lived expression of the very gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the church that lives the gospel. This is the will of God for every Christian and every collection of Christians called the church. The lived expression of God. Basically, after 11 chapters of theology, Paul says, so what? After reasoning all of this, so what? Jesus was the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible and all the Hebrew prophecies. So what? Jesus was the apex of history. So what? You're a Christian. You're a converted Jew who's now become a Christian and recognized the Messiahship of Jesus. So what? The very first word of chapter 12, therefore, is saying... This is what the first 11 chapters are there for. Don't miss that transitional word. The very first word of chapter 12 is therefore. What that word means is that all of the, uh, all of the chapters going forward are based upon all of the chapters behind it, the previous chapters. And Paul is saying that the first 11 chapters this is what they're there for. In chapter 12, Paul begins to give Christians the practical application of the gospel he has just so expertly reasoned out in the previous 11 chapters. Because all theology, all theology is practical. And all Christian practice, if it is truly Christian, is theological. All theology is practical, or it's worthless. All Christian practice is practical, is theological, or it's worthless. So if your practice of Christianity is not rooted in a solid theology, and your theology is not practically expressed in your everyday walking around life, so what? Romans 12, 1 and 2 can be understood as the heading or the title of the rest of the chapters of this letter. And remember, when you're reading the, a book of the Bible Paul didn't write in chapters and he didn't write in verses. That was all applied later. 
Paul just wrote the letter. Later on, for the sake of helping people understand the Scriptures, they broke it up into chapters and headings and verses. And So Paul wasn't writing, okay, now on to chapter 12, verse 1. He was just writing a letter to some people. So Paul addresses this practical tone going forward. Verse 1, check it out, verse 1, contrast a dead sacrifice with a living sacrifice. This was, would have been a very provocative thing for Paul to say to those people. Because he said, you present yourself as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice to everybody that was reading that letter meant a dead animal. Or, in ancient Near Eastern tradition, meant a dead person. If you were sacrificing something or someone to God. For his audience, offering a sacrifice meant dying. It was clear. There's no way of mistaking it. We might think of sacrifice as, yeah, maybe I'll give up Mountain Dew for uh, the afternoon. And that'll be my big sacrifice. Or maybe I'll give up social media for a day and fast it for the Lord. That's not what these people were thinking about with regard to sacrifice. When he used the word sacrifice, he meant you're dead. They understood it as I'm dead. If I'm a sacrifice, I'm dead. Yes, that's exactly what he was getting at. This is the result of the gospel. Before you can live in Christ, you've got to die in Christ. You've got to die with him to be resurrected with him. This is exactly the gospel that he's talking about. For the first time, because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, humans can sacrifice themselves and live to tell about it. Because of Jesus, his life and his resurrection. Romans chapter 6, let's take a look at that, verse 13. Romans 6, verse 13. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. In other words, sacrifice yourself completely to God. Give up your life. If you try to retain your life, you will lose your life. But if you give up your life, you will gain your life. These are the words of Jesus. He's recognizing those words. You must instead give yourselves up completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. Remarking on dead in sin, alive in Christ. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. And late in another book, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, even in your eating and drinking, even in the way you eat and the way you drink and the way you think and the way you walk and the way you dress and the way you do your bills, and the, all, everything is, all of your life is a sacrifice. You are dead to it all because you've been resurrected to new life. And now it's about his will being your will. This offering or sacrifice, he says, do you see it in that, in that verse, verse 1 of 12? This offering of, of this sacrifice is our reasonable. It's reasonable. It's spiritual. It's our true way of worship. Depending on what version you're reading, you're going to get it's our reasonable act of worship. You're going to get it's our uh, true way to worship. It's our spiritual act of worship, depending on what version you're reading. Because the Bible was originally written in Greek, there is a lot of debate among scholars about what English words should be used here in the translation. The best that I've come up with in studying this passage is this, that it's the informed or understood way of worship. It, it is the informed worship. It would read like this. He would get to that end of that verse 1 and read, which is informed worship? Or which is our understanding of worship? So we sacrifice ourselves for God when we understand His grace and its place in our life. We are informed sacrifices, not like ignorant, unwilling animals. 
We offer ourselves completely to God, intelligently and willingly. This is our informed and willing act or service of worship. And that's what pleases God. We don't go into this ignorant or unknown or unaware. We walk straight into this and recognize that we are sacrificing our will to be possessed of the will of another informed. Have you ever been to the doctor's office and they say, you've got to sign these forms? Anybody fill out forms at a doctor's office or a dentist's office? Or you fill out these forms. What are they? They are informed consent. You're giving consent to that person to do whatever it is they said they were going to do. In the very same way, Paul's saying, when you come to Jesus, you're coming informed. When you give your life to Jesus, it's informed consent. You are consenting to give God, to sacrifice your will. You're consenting to sacrifice your will and have your will be replaced with his will. That's what you're consenting to. When you gave your, when you prayed that prayer, when you received Jesus, that was your moment of informed consent. You heard the gospel, you understood the sacrifice, and you said yes. I gotta tell you, I've, I've reneged at times. I have failed at times. I have done my will rather than his will. I gave him consent and then I took it back. Christianity is often a matter of negotiating that consent. Lord, I really want this. I really, really want this. Lord, I'm going to take this. Lord, I'm going to do this anyway because I'm really mad and I want to say this and I'm going to say this. I don't care what happens. I don't care how it sounds. I don't care what damage it does to my relationship. I'm going to say it because I have a right to say it. And we take back consent when we know it's not his will, but it's ours. Verse 2. Verse 2 tells us how we can carry out the sweeping demand to give ourselves as a living sacrifice. Since we're not dead sacrificed, since we are informed, understanding, since we have given our consent, we are living sacrifices, actually living out the gospel in a holistic manner. That's the goal. But what does that mean exactly? Paul and his theology had a two-stage or, or two-error concept of our salvation history. There was the before Christ and the after Christ stage or phase of our life. Now, do you remember yourself before Christ? If not, ask someone. They probably remember. Uh, those close to me often say, it is so good that you became a Christian. Ooh, I would not want to know you if you were not a Christian. <laughs> whoa, yes. If you weren't a Christian, whoa, what, what would you be like? What would you... Bottom line is that Jesus should make a difference. Jesus must make a difference in your life. If you can't tell a major and ongoing difference in your life after receiving Christ, after being informed and giving consent, then something is really wrong. If you were selfish before Christ, and you're pretty much just as selfish after Christ, you may not have Christ. That is a stark statement. If you were driven by anger or resentment or bitterness or shame before Christ and you're pretty much driven by anger and resentment or bitterness or shame after Christ, you may not have Christ. This is a really important concept to get because Paul is very serious. After 11 chapters of reasoning out the gospel theology and the reason why Jesus came to think that we can just religiously take on a little title and go about our life unchanged is unconscionable. That is not the gospel. That is not a relationship with Jesus if you lived a life of lust or addiction before Christ and you live a life of lust and addiction after Christ, you may not have Christ. 
I'm not calling in the question anyone's relationship with Jesus. I'm not calling in the question anyone's salvation. I'm asking you to look into the mirror of Scripture and answer the question, have I been changed? If you were fragile and easily offended before Christ, and you're still fragile and easily offended after Christ, you may not have Christ. Paul is saying in this second verse that if we have Christ, we will be different. We will be transformed. In verse 2, Paul anchors this transformation in the willingness to have our minds renewed. Look at this verse again in verse 2. He says, let. Who's got to give God permission here? You. Me. Me. God's not going to trump your will. God's not going to grab you by the nap of the neck and throw you down and get you in a full Nelson and say, you know, give up or I'll. He's not going to do that. This says, Paul says, Paul puts the, the emphasis where it should be on your will to say, I let, I will let God transform me into a new person by changing the way I think. Let a willing sacrifice lets God transform them. In the very same way, Abraham brought Isaac to the altar, and ultimately, Isaac gave Abraham permission. In the very same way that Jesus laid down and opened up his hands and said, Take me, is the very same way when we say, I want to respond in anger, and I want to call that person this or that. Or I want to be offended, but for the sake of the gospel, I will not. You let him transform your mind. An informed life of worship is a life of sacrificing our will for his will every day, all day long. It's not a once and done thing. It's an everyday all day long experience. If you've been hurt in your past and you're harboring that hurt and you're still carrying that hurt, there's something wrong. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21. Ephesians 4, 21. Look at how many times the word let is used. And also notice the word instead. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from Him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Sounds almost exactly like Romans 12, 1 and 2. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth for we are all parts of the same body and don't sin by letting anger control you how many of us want to blame other people for our anger we say you made me so angry Paul's saying right here don't sin by letting anger control you there's nobody else in control of you but you Nobody goes up and says, you made me love you. I didn't want to. You made me like you. I didn't want to. I'm resisting it with all my strength, but I, you, made me, you made me have compassion on you. Nobody says that kind of stuff. They always own it. Oh, I'm very compassionate on you. I love you. Oh, I like you. Yes, I'm so good at all that. But when it comes to negative things, bitterness, resentment, offense, all that stuff, you offended me. You hurt me. You, uh, you, you did this. You... We blame other people on all those negative offenses. And Paul's saying, hey, hey, hey. Your feelings are your feelings. You own them. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work. And then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let Everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. 
Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness. Who's to get rid of it? You. You get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Before God can take any negative behavior, attitude, thought, or lifestyle from you, you've got to let him take it. You've got to desire, you've got to give it up. You've got to open your hands and say, here, you give, you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul is weaving it all together. Colossians 3, verse 5, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. You put them to death. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Do not be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of the anger, the rage, the malicious behavior, the slander, and the dirty language. Don't lie to each other for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him 11 chapters of gospels theology and Paul says so what the gospel is no good news at all if it has no power to transform. But that power is only released when we let it. When we release it. When we say, Holy Spirit, possess me. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, I invite you into this conflict. I invite you into my sexuality. I invite you into my money. I invite you into my workplace and my work. Holy Spirit, I invite you into my driving. I invite you into my eating, my drinking, my thinking, my politics, my attitude. And then, as you do that more and more and more, you will let the power into that area of your life. And you, by sacrificing your will, Jesus will come in and renew you. Renew your mind. Renew your thinking. Renew everything about you. That's the power to transform, to change a person, to make them like him, their creator. Transformation, change, renewal is central to Paul's theology. By virtue of Paul's writings, he was inspired by God. You believe that? Do you believe that God, that the Bible is God's word? If you believe the Bible is God's word, then the words that Paul wrote are God's words. Not Paul's, they are God's. So central to God's thinking is you letting him transform you. God's central interest, if we are to believe the Bible, that it's his, God's word, not Paul's word, it's God's word. He used Paul, but it's God's word. Then central to God's gospel is transformation, change, and renewal. And if transformation, change, and renewal isn't happening, then something's wrong. There is the answer. This is the answer to Paul saying, so what? <clears throat> change. Renewal, transformation, that's what. So what? That's what. Life without any interest in holistic change and transformation is simply as dead as an Old Testament goat. Anyone who says, I'm a believer and I'm following Christ and I'm a Christian without a serious daily dedication to transformation and change is as good as a dead Old Testament goat. I do not recommend you call your spouse that. I just recommend you don't use that. Do not say, Pastor Steve said, don't even try that. The untransformed person may be passively religious, but there is certainly no active transformation going on. And to Paul, no active transformation means no Christ is active. 
in that person's life. Now, you may certainly be a Christian, but you may not be letting Jesus transform you. And Paul's saying something's wrong there. An informed life of worship is a life of sacrificing our will for his will. This is the renewing and transformation of our minds. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. Now remember, circumcision is just code in the scriptures for religion. It doesn't matter whether we have religion or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. I really need to speak with you very, very clearly here as a pastor because it is my responsibility as the lead prophet of this church to tell you that when you stand before Jesus, on that great day, when you stand before him, he's not going to be asking whether or not you went to church and what church did you go to. He's not going to be asking whether or not you stopped smoking and drinking and watching those nasty things on the internet or whatever, talking that language. He's not going to ask you about that. He's not going to ask you if you gave money to the church or how much money you gave or if you were a true tither or not a true tither. Nope. He's got two things in mind, just two things. One, did you love me? And then the second one would just answer itself after that answer. When he says, did you love me? You and him will know the answer to that question because the answer to that question will be evidenced by the second question. Did you become like me? Have you been transformed? Have you been changed? You won't be able to say, hey God, we did such a great job. Thanks for that promotion. Hey God, thanks so much for giving me wisdom on buying that house. We are so connected. Hey God, thanks for answering that prayer about my health and all that issue. Thank you. I'm sure we're... Jesus came to do two things. To give you the chance to love God with all your heart and to totally transform your life. That's what he came to do. All the other stuff follows. Jesus prayed that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we often imagine that Jesus is thinking about everyone being happy, everyone being comfortable, everyone living and being perfectly convenient. We pray for God's will in our life, which generally for the Western Christian is for God to deliver us from any amount of suffering that we're dealing with at the moment. All of our prayer life is spent, oh God, fix this, save this, change that, do this, so I can be comfortable, so things can be convenient. If Jesus comes back on the day after the November election, the first question he asks is not, who did you vote for? He's just going to ask, did you love me? And were you transformed? And that will be it. He said, many, many will say, Lord, Lord, but I didn't know them. This is what Paul is saying. After 11 chapters of working out a transforming gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, now here's for the meat of it. Now here's the so what. Here's what? Transformation. Conforming not to the things of this world, but to the things of God. That's what suffering does for us. We pray, God, remove all suffering, change everything, fix everything in my life. But yet, if God allows suffering to continue in your life, he will allow it for the purpose of affecting his will for the general kingdom of God and affecting his will for your life to be more like Jesus. The truth is that Jesus came to reconcile us to God legally and to practically transform us, to reconcile us to the life that we lost so long ago in the garden. We do not have death and disease in this world because, we've met, because we made it happen. We do not have death and disease in this world because of some grand thing God's put it on us and he's trying to teach us something from it. We have death and disease and sickness and failure and bad hair days and all of that because of our own broken sinfulness. 
But God is going to use all of it to do one thing, and that is to inspire us to love him so he can change us into being more like who we were originally created to be. Jesus came to serve as the ultimate living sacrifice for our sinfulness so that we could reconcile our life now with the life that we were always created to live, which is a life lived like Jesus would live if he were us. Let me say that again. And I'm inviting you to adopt this as your go-to prayer phrase for the next four weeks. For the next four weeks, beginning today, I'm asking you to adopt this prayer phrase for God to do His will on earth as it is in heaven. Here it is. Let me share it with you. Lord, help me live my life like Jesus would live if He were me. That's it. Stop praying about your health. Stop praying about your car. Stop praying about your boss at work. Stop praying about all that. And just for four weeks, stop praying about all the earthly concerns you have and seek just this one thing and see what happens. How would Jesus think about race if Jesus were you? How would Jesus express sexuality if Jesus were you? How would Jesus respond to criticism if he were you? How would Jesus react to disappointment if he encountered your disappointment? How would Jesus discipline your children if he had your children? How would Jesus love your spouse if he were married to your spouse? How would Jesus spend your money if he had your money? The Jesus-like answer to these questions is actually God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the good and the pleasing and the perfect will of God for your life. Let's discern God's will for you and your life by simply reading verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then, hold it, then, not before then, then, only then, will you learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So transformation and change of life, starting with your mind, is God's good pleasing, and perfect will for you. Jesus called us to seek first his kingdom, just like Mike preached last week. Seeking the kingdom is the same as seeking to be like the king who rules the kingdom we seek. When our minds are consumed with the things of our earthly will, like, God, should I take this job? God, should I marry this person? God, should I go to this college? God, should I buy this house or that house? Take this treatment or that treatment? God, God, God. We are seeking after the earthly kingdom of this world. Are, are those things unimportant? No, they're very important. But are they most important? No, they're not. When we're seeking God's kingdom, we can turn our eyes upon Jesus. And when we do, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Then and only then, when we get the cart of God's will, the cart of, excuse me, the horse of God's will, the horse of the kingdom, only then and only then at all will all these things that we fret about and follow after get behind us. Only when we get the horse of God's will, the, the horse of God's kingdom out front, and we say, I want to live a life that Jesus would live if he were me. Then finally, all these things will be added to us like Jesus said in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and all those things you fret and worry about will finally get in line 
and you, you, you will not be racked with anxiety and pain and worry about all of them because you'll be looking at me and I'll be taking care of all those things. All those ancillary troubles that we fret over, that dominate our prayer life. What shall I watch? What shall I work? Where shall I work? What shall I watch? Who shall I marry? Which car or house should I buy? Are all left to God to work out when we fix our eyes on Jesus in praying and living for He is the beginning and the end of our faith. Try this. Over the next four weeks, don't pray about any earthly-oriented thing. Don't talk to God about your job, about your children, about your health, about your money, about your conflict. Just pray that you would live the kind of life that Jesus would live if He were you. Romans 12, 1 and 2, let's reflect. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is, his, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let's respond. Would you stand with me wherever you are? Whether you're watching online or here in the sanctuary, I just want to invite you to stand right now. We're going to share a song of response. This is an opportunity for us to be able to recognize that we are in the very presence of God. We're taking the imminent presence of God that we've talked about several weeks ago, and we're looking for the manifest presence of God because therein lies the power of transformation. When we let the manifest presence of God invade our anger, invade our bitterness, invade our hurt, invade our history, invade our future, when we let the power of the Holy Spirit, the God of the universe, into all of those areas, we then recognize His good, pleasing, and perfect will, which is ultimately to make us more like Jesus the way we were originally created to live. So whether you're online or right now, I want to invite you to sing this song and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you. Would you do that right now? Would you just take this one song and, and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you? And if you're watching online, you're welcome right now. If you would like to go to the spiritual response time, you're welcome to do that. That, that. that altar area online is opening up right now for you that are watching online. There's a person waiting to pray for you right now. Don't disconnect thinking the service is over. You know, the, the people in, the, in person, they're in captivity, you online, I know you can just flip the switch right now and go walk in the kitchen and start making lunch. But I'm inviting you to let this soak in. Let it soak in by just singing this song. Come on, church. Let's sing. Let's worship. Thank you, Holy Spirit.
I want you to know that this church is not about empty religion, prosaic, run-of-the-mill, ritualistic religion. This church is about a relationship, a real relationship that transforms, that changes, that makes a difference, that answers the question, so what? It makes a difference. And so I'm inviting you that if, that if you need assistance with that, if you'd like some help, if you're not quite sure what to do, where to go, if you're saying, Pastor, I, I know I'm a Christian, but I got to tell you, there's an area of my life I'm just, that, that I have not been able to give up and let the Lord reign. I want to help you with that. I want to help you with those issues that's, that's preventing you from moving into that transformative, more holistic experience with Jesus. You just let me know. Text me, email me, call. Catch me after service and say that. If you're online, do the same thing. But right now, let's mark this moment by saying our benediction together. And then we in person will sing one more song and we'll say goodbye to all those folks online. And Let's share that benediction together. Let's say it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my Redeemer.